Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. We appreciate it. Thank you, Robin Collier, for airing this show on KCEI Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. Today, I'm going solo, and I would like to talk about the difference between artificial intelligence and imaginative intelligence. Artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. We use it every day. Artificial intelligence helps us process our credit cards. When you book an an airline ticket, artificial intelligence sorts out the information you need for your airline ticket. On and on it goes. There's a program online right now called Grammarly and you can put your written material into Grammarly and the Grammarly program will help you sort out all the grammar. Where does the period go? Spelling right. Now Grammarly is not 100% accurate. It does have a few flaws. That said, I've been using Grammarly for a few years and I've come to rely on it and I'm very satisfied with it and I'm completely aware that it provides all the services I need by way of artificial intelligence. If you're using a smartphone, which you probably are, there's lots of artificial intelligence going on with your smartphone. Even though artificial intelligence has been threading throughout our lives for years, on November the 30th last year, November the 30th, 2022, an open source program appeared online called ChatGPT. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer Model. And when it first appeared, people were very curious about it. Some people were drawn to it and they tried it out right away and other people were repelled by it and they resisted it, even got up very, very upset about it. So if you haven't experienced it, you may be wondering why people would be drawn to it or repelled by it. Well, here's why. Like I said, GPT means generative pre-trained transformer model. And while there are other artificial intelligence programs that will do things like create paintings or draw pictures for you or create designs, ChatGPT is specifically about generating written work on almost anything. Say, for example, if you need to have some copy written for a workshop that you're planning, you can type instructions into the ChatGPT system saying, take these notes and turn them into a sales page for my upcoming workshop. Then you paste the notes into ChatGPT and 15 seconds later you end up with a reasonably decent bit of copy describing your workshop. Might even have a call to action in the copy as well. When I first tried it, I entered my bio to see what would happen and again 15-20 seconds later it recycled my bio when I read what ChatGPT had written and compared it to what I had written, there, there were differences, absolutely. And in fact, some of what ChatGPT generated was not to my style. I didn't really like it. That said, some of what was in the ChatGPT generated bio that I had asked for was usable. So I was able to take 
what was usable and put it in the bio that I had. I also asked ChatGPT to generate 20 problems writers have that must be solved and to generate the solutions. Again, 20 seconds, 30 seconds later, it listed 20 problems and gave me 20 solutions. I wasn't really surprised to see the solutions ChatGPT offered. I mean, I've been writing for years, writing poetry and prose and whatnot, also been working with people, trying to help them figure out how to solve some of the same problems that ChatGPT generated. Even so, the speed, the speed was really impressive. There they were, 20 problems, just like that. So the speed, the accuracy was quite mysterious for some people. Certainly was for me. I thought, my goodness, this is the first time I've actually seen artificial intelligence in action up close. So there it was on my computer screen. I was able to engage with it over and over again. I was able to experiment with it. And naturally, I also started to ask some questions about artificial intelligence as I'm staring at it, looking at it generate this material back to me in 20 or 30 seconds. I started wondering, what in the world is all of this about? Is this good? Is it bad? Is this something that will change my life? I began to realize that it probably was something that was going to change my life. I couldn't know exactly what what kind of changes would happen and I started to hear podcasts like the Ezra Klein show which is produced by the New York Times Ezra Klein has already devoted many hours to artificial intelligence on his show the Ezra Klein show I mean even today the show was titled freaked out we really can prepare for AI so the point to that title is some people are freaked out about ChatGPT and artificial intelligence and other people are, are drawn to it, like I said. I'm a little bit of both. I'm very curious about it, certainly not freaked out. I also understand the implications. I understand the, the range and understand why. All that said, I'm still curious about it. And I think when something new comes on the horizon, it's worth looking at from a more open point of view. I mean, after all, ChatGPT is open source. So we can, as human beings, open up to these ideas without putting up a whole lot of resistance. Even so, it's still important to approach all of these new shiny objects with a little bit of a skeptical eye, but at the same time not get so overdone by it that the whole thing overwhelms you. I will tell you, I've come across a few people who were adamantly opposed to ChatGPT, adamantly opposed to artificial intelligence. And as they spoke about it, they became more and more and more upset. And I, I started to think, well, they're so afraid of this. And so, so they even said terrified. It was awful. It's the devil. Used terms like that as if it was some sort of swamp mist rising out of the night, getting ready to enfold them, to consume them. Who knows? Maybe their fears are legitimate. I actually suspect there's some truth to their fears. That said, I'm not in that camp. I'm, like I said, more curious about it. What will this new variable do? How can I use it as a tool? How can I embrace it like all the other tools that have ever been invented throughout humanity? God knows we started with the small things like sticks and fire and whatnot, and now look where we are. You may be in the camp of thinking it's a complete disaster that we destroyed the world, and we may well have achieved that with climate change and with all the conflict we have. On the other side of that, 
All of this disruption may be just a natural order of things, like evolution. We're figuring out how to fit into the things that we've invented. We're really catching up with ourselves, if you will, and maybe artificial intelligence is part of that. Is artificial intelligence artificial? That's a question that's worth really asking. How does artificial intelligence compare to imaginative intelligence? And can artificial intelligence even have imaginative intelligence? Currently, I don't think artificial intelligence has the range to have imaginative intelligence. Now, maybe it's possible. I don't know. But I suspect it may not ever be able to have what we know as imaginative intelligence. No matter how advanced artificial intelligence becomes, no matter how it's contained, right now I'm looking at my computer screen when I'm fooling around with artificial intelligence, it won't be long until likely we will have robots that look quite like human beings powered by artificial intelligence. That said, no matter how advanced artificial intelligence becomes, it will still not be human. Being human belongs to you, belongs to me, belongs to all of us because we are humans. We are not machines. I wonder if an artificial machine would have any concern for death. Would it even know that death exists? We know death exists. We know it emotionally. Does a machine know that? I suspect maybe not. Since an artificial intelligence machine is artificial and is a machine, would it ever be able to drive cross-country on a road trip and notice the sunrise and the mist across the fields? Would it be able to sit underneath a full moon in summertime with someone it, it loved and look up at the moon and, and make a wish as if the moon could answer all wishes ever made? Or could an artificial intelligence machine hold the hand of a dying loved one? The experiences of walking along the sea, looking up at the full moon, or holding the hand of someone you love, those experiences belong to imaginative intelligence. They belong to the memories we make. And those memories, those experiences, belong to humanity, belong to us, belong to the humans walking the earth, not to the machines. I doubt artificial intelligence can ever, ever do that. Those kinds of experiences belong in the realms of imaginative intelligence. And another thing I've noticed about the fears people have around artificial intelligence, those fears are focused on how artificial intelligence will affect them. It occurred to me that nobody in the world of artificial intelligence development seems to be developing artificial intelligence that relates to whales or to eagles or to foxes or coyotes or prairie dogs or for trees for that matter. An aspen grove has a root system that connects all of the trees that are sitting on the side of the hill. So one tree is not just one tree. It's connected to an entire root system that's communicating with all the shoots that are rising above the ground, which we call aspen trees. So we call artificial intelligence artificial intelligence because we invented it. And because we've invented it, good or bad, it will have an impact on the entire world. Who knows? Maybe artificial intelligence 
will solve the climate issues that we have created. Or maybe artificial intelligence will exacerbate the climate issues that we've created. Either way, it's a human proposition, and while it might have an effect on the other animals roaming the earth, it still remains exclusively something that's within our human realm, not within the larger animal realm. In fact, if some electromagnetic outer space catastrophe of explosion just short-circuited our entire digital space and completely eliminated artificial intelligence or maybe even eliminated the human species altogether who knows the animals wouldn't care they would still be out there in the world roaming around doing their animal things they wouldn't even notice we were gone which reminds me of a poem written by sarah teasdale titled there will come soft rains it opens with wartime in parentheses and goes on like this there will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pools singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white robins will wear their feathery fire whistling their whims on a low fence wire and not one will know of the war not one will care at last when it is done not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly, and spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. I've always appreciated how that powerful poem brings into focus our significance and our insignificance. In order to appreciate the contrast between our significance and our insignificance, we must draw on our imaginative intelligence. We must draw on all of those subtle things that have happened to us as humans walking the earth in the flesh as human beings. Artificial intelligence will never be able to do that. So it will never fully be able to understand what it's like to be human because it will never be human. And the reason why it will never be human is because it is born of code. Someone has to write code with instructions on how artificial intelligence must behave, how it must conduct itself, how it must learn, how it must translate. And artificial intelligence itself could write its own code and birth itself over and over from the code it writes for itself. But no matter how many lines of code it has to write, no matter how many years it does that, the AI machine or somebody else must write code for it to continue to operate. Whereas human beings, you and I, came from our mother's wombs. And as a result, it was a very different experience an imaginative intelligence experience from the moment of conception all the way through to where we are now. And of course, when we were born, we were born with DNA coding built into our systems, and that coding has informed the way we function. It has framed the way our personalities interact. It's made us who we are. It's a very different kind of coding than the kind of coding one has to employ in order to create artificial intelligence. So for right now, I suspect, and I'm pretty sure that artificial intelligence will continue to be artificial, created by coding, and human imaginative intelligence will be 
created by humans born of the womb. That said, I have heard another theory that might throw a ringer into my calculations. Ten years ago, I had an opportunity to give a TEDx Asheville talk on the value of storming the weather patterns in your imagination in order to make creative work happen. After I finished my talk, I sat down in the audience to listen to the rest of the speakers. One of the speakers, a scientist, and I don't remember her name, gave a talk about how some scientists consider the human beings existing right now as a bridge species. Keep in mind that this was 10 years ago, and even though artificial intelligence was in play during that time, it was nowhere near as important and forceful as it is now. While artificial intelligence was a thread in her talk, her focus was more about the contrast between the digital machines, which were mechanical, that we had then and still have to this day, and the potential for turning those digital mechanical machines into biological propositions, little biological robots that could be injected into the human species. She asked us to imagine what it would be like if you could take the digital mechanics and put them into biological form and then integrate them into your system so that you could function biologically in the same way that a mechanical computer or smartphone functions even now. She pointed out that medicine already used robots to go in and do little operations and when the operations were over those biological robots dissipated into the blood system and no longer existed. So there was some precedent even then to say that this was possible. Her contention was that if you were able to put biological computing systems into a human body and the body was able to absorb those systems and integrated them into the way the body functioned, you would have all kinds of possibilities. Now implied here, of course, is artificial intelligence. It would be almost impossible to do this without artificial intelligence. So in some ways, I'm running counter to my original thinking, if indeed we become the bridge species that takes us to another species. So her point was that if you are able to do that with biological computers, and those computers then could integrate into the human DNA, it wouldn't be long before a new species would emerge that would be powered by the human aspects of humanity along with the aspects of artificial intelligence and the digital aspects which would then be biologically incorporated into the human species. Eventually, she said, when the new species emerged and a couple of thousand years passed, the new species would look back on us as the most primitive form of humanity. She went on to say that if we did have that level of computing power built in biologically, that's when space travel would become more and more feasible because the human body could heal itself. It could assess, repair, do a lot of the operations that needed to be done in order to make life go on and on and on. She didn't speculate on how long a human life would last with all of these new bells and whistles, but she did suggest that it would go much further than what we have right now, enough so that you could do space travel over a long period of time and be successful at it. 
She suggested that if something like that happened, the human species might be one of the very few species that would have the potential to live forever because it would colonize other planets, would go find other places to live, and go on and on and on. Of course, when you move into the cosmic realm and the other dimensions, who knows, maybe this has already happened anyway. But it is an interesting thing to think about coming back to November 2022 and chat GPT, which stunned me looking at it on my little computer screen, which is a far cry from the future and another species which we have no idea will exist or not exist. But for now, we're here, the human species, and we indeed have artificial intelligence we're working with, and we also have what we've always had, imaginative intelligence. One of the biggest differences between artificial intelligence and imaginative intelligence is that you never have to plug in your imaginative intelligence. It's with you 24 hours a day when you're awake, when you're dreaming. No matter where you are, your imaginative intelligence is fully engaged. Artificial intelligence, on the other hand, requires a plug. It requires a device. It requires some kind of connection beyond you. So since we're constantly forever connected to our imaginative intelligence, perhaps this idea of imaginative intelligence runs beyond us. We never have to plug it in. It's always there. Perhaps it's there with the creatures around us as well. Perhaps it's there with the aspen groves. Perhaps it's there when you're looking up at the moon or walking along the sea. You don't have to invent imaginative intelligence. You don't have to code it. And there's never a technical glitch. So you never have to go to the Genius Bar at the Apple Store to fix whatever it is that's not working. Fortunately, your imaginative intelligence will never need help from the Genius Bar at the Apple Store. It's working just fine as it is. And as for artificial intelligence having a sense of humor, maybe it could feign a sense of humor, a bit of levity, but it, would, it, would it be genuine? Like you telling me a joke and me laughing from my belly at how, how good your joke is or how much it struck me as funny. So on that note, on the note of levity, and also because we've been playing around with the idea of the moon and the sea and other natural things like the aspen grove, I'd like to sorbet this moment with a poem that I wrote, Poetry, Imaginative Intelligence. I think there's a relationship there between those two. Now, of course, if you go to ChatGPT and you ask it to generate a sonnet or a villanelle, you'll get one. But does it have the, the duende? Does it have the spirit? Does it have the, the essence, the sense of humor? So here's a little poem that I wrote about a bug. I think it has a sense of humor. You tell me. Here we go. If you see a bug and a bug sees you, tell me then, what will you do? Will you dance and sing and run and play and say to the bug, well, it's okay that the world is wet and green and lean and you are the biggest bug I've ever seen. I'll tell you the truth because I know in this world, wherever you go, you'll find a bug that will be your friend. One that will tell you exactly when it's time to get up and time to come in. So if you find that bug, keep your feet on the floor. Don't mash it in the head or kick it out the door. It'll be your buddy. It'll be your friend. It'll carry your flag around the bend. So put it on a plant, set it in the sun, 
watch it grin and jump and run from leaf to leaf and stem to stem. So just remember, it's up to you. Don't kick those bugs, whatever you do. And tomorrow, when one comes dancing along, beat on a milk jug and sing your song. Then you'll know the world is fine, cause you and the bugs will all be trying to get along and have some fun, dancing on the grass till the day is done. So I'll ask you once more, and answer me true. If you see a bug, and a bug sees you, tell me then, what will you do? So there you go, a poem about a bug, which I wrote many years ago, and I've always enjoyed reciting it and having fun with all of the rhymes. It qualifies as maybe my only young adult poem, or children's poem, really. I know there's a fair amount of imaginative intelligence in this little poem, because every time I recite it, I smile, I'm happy, I see little bugs dancing around, like ladybugs, or fireflies, or, or pick a bug, any bug, what bug do you like? So even when you're rolling around the question of what bug do you like in your imagination, your imagination's intelligence is kicking in. It enjoys it. Your imaginative intelligence likes to be stimulated. And intelligence can grow. ChatGPT, artificial intelligence, it grows as well. But it grows in a very, very different way. So just for kicks, just now, I ran my bug poem through ChatGPT with the instructions that said, rewrite this poem for clarity, understanding, and literary value. So for better or worse, 15 seconds later, here's what ChatGPT delivered. The revision, the literary revision of the bug poem. I'll let you decide what you think about it. Here goes. If a bug crosses your path and catches your eye, what will you do? Will you dance and sing and run? and make a new friend out of the bug that you've won? Will you say, hello little bug, it's okay that you're crawling around on this wet green day. You're the biggest bug I've ever seen. But that doesn't matter, let's both enjoy this scene. The truth is that bugs are all around, in every corner, on every patch of ground. But if you look closely, you might just find a bug that's a friend. One of a kind, it might guide you when you come in, and out. So don't squish or kick it about. Let it be your buddy. Let it be your friend. And carry your flag around every bend. Put it on a plant or set it in the sun. Watch it jump and run from leaf to leaf having fun. So remember, it's up to you. Don't harm those bugs, whatever you do. And when a bug comes along tomorrow, beat on a jug and sing a song. Don't feel sorrow. For you'll know the world is fine when you and the bugs are all trying to get along just fine, dancing on the grass, having fun till day is done. So I ask you again, tell me what you'll do when you see a bug and a bug sees you. So there you go, the chat GPT version of my poem, The Bug, generated in 15 seconds with the instruction, write for clarity, understanding, and literary value. So what you just heard was the chat GPT version of what it thinks is literary. It thinks it's clear, and it thinks it's easy to understand. Well, you tell me. I will tell you, however, I prefer the first one. It has a lot more levity. It's 
It's light, it's fun. And when I wrote it, I wasn't trying to write a poem or be a poet or do anything other than just simply have a little bit of rhyming fun and tickle my imagination as I did it, stimulate my imaginative intelligence. So far, ChatGPT clearly can get the sense of something, but does it get the, the essence of it? Does it track what I'm visualizing in my imagination? Will it, will it reproduce what you're visualizing in your imagination? Not right now, but maybe, maybe later, maybe if it does become some biological application that fits into your system, into my system, and can interpret those imaginative leaps we make in our dreams, perhaps then we'll have a different outcome. But for now, not so much. I also want to make sure that I mention, even though this is an evaluation of artificial intelligence and imaginative intelligence, I am a fan of ChatGPT, and I do use it a fair amount. And it does respond to the brief, what you ask it to do. For example, I recently revised my bio for LinkedIn, and I spent a great deal of time writing the bio, thinking about it, trying to put the the different uh, items, the different points in place so that it flowed and worked well. And then it occurred to me that even though I had written bios for LinkedIn before, bios for my website, I really didn't know if LinkedIn had its own format for bios. So I typed in instructions to ChatGPT, which said, please rewrite this with a LinkedIn format, colon, and then I put the bio into the into the frame and 15 seconds later it generated a bio that was within the format of LinkedIn so even though AI artificial intelligence chat GPT may not be able to have imaginative intelligence in rewriting the bug poem it did have the kind of intelligence I needed to format my bio for LinkedIn I needed artificial intelligence. I needed intelligence that didn't necessarily depend on my imagination. More, it depended on, on structure and format. So ChatGPT gave me that. That's when I learned that ChatGPT responds to the request you ask of it. When ChatGPT first came out, NPR did a ton of stories on it, interviewed a lot of people, and one of the biggest problems teachers saw, of course, was plagiarism. Students will use ChatGPT to write their essays, spend 15 seconds doing it and turn it in and say, here's my essay. And a lot of teachers were afraid of that. And there's some truth to it. Students will attempt that and students have attempted to do that. This one teacher, however, had a very unique and delightful creative way of dealing with it. He had no fear of ChatGPT at all, and he was not worried about his students using it to plagiarize. And the reason he said he wasn't worried was because when you excite a student about a subject, the student wants to go deeper and deeper into the subject and learn. So the notion of plagiarizing to get a good grade becomes diminished, dimmed, even disappears. So what this teacher's solution was, and I really like this, the teacher said, let's work on the kind of questions 
we will ask ChatGPT to help us with our research. Because if we understand our questions, we will understand better and deeper our topic. So that's just what the teacher did. He worked with the students, getting them to ask questions, odd questions about things that they might not think of. So the students were using their imaginative intelligence to come up with provocative questions that challenged ChatGPT. And it worked. The students stayed engaged. The students were able to use the material they collected in their research papers. And so when the teacher was finished working with the students, ChatGPT became a part of their toolbox, not something for them to hide or be punished for using. And as the teacher reported this, he became more and more excited. And you could tell he really, really enjoyed his teaching career. And as he did tell the audience, he had been doing it a long, long time. And he had learned many years ago not to be intimidated or afraid by the new things that come along, but instead to evaluate them and see how you can use them to enhance your intellect, your imaginative intelligence. So when that interview was over, I was smiling, and I'm smiling now when I'm telling you this story, because I'm in that camp. I do believe it's really important to at least look with an open mind at the new things that come along. You may decide those new things don't work for you. You may find some of those new things completely off base, or you might find them to be the bee's knees. I've always liked to say that phrase. I just said it now because it just popped up. The bee's knees, which of course implies that the bees have honey around their knees and everything is good in the kingdom. Here we are, back to the bugs. You gotta love the bee's knees. When ChatGPT came out last year, a lot of people in the advertising business, the copywriting business, did not think ChatGPT was the bee's knees. And that's because it could write copy. It could generate advertising jingles. It could come up with great copy that included 12 reasons why you should buy a certain type of tire or six reasons why you should fly one airline over another and on and on it went. So the copywriters realized there was competition in the game. And also it is true that a lot of businesses realized they didn't need to have imaginative intelligence to write their, their copy to sell their candy bar or their bicycle or whatever it was they are selling. They just needed the information written in a quick format that's easy to understand. Not a lot different really than me needing to have the LinkedIn format for my bio. Even though I wrote the copy to start with, after I entered it into ChatGPT, asking it to format it for LinkedIn, I was more confident to put it on LinkedIn and feel good about it. So you could say it was a collaboration between ChatGPT, artificial intelligence, and my imaginative intelligence. And I don't mind that. I think it worked fine in that case. So if you're a freelance artist, a writer, a poet, a singer, songwriter, whatever you do in the arts, or other things as well, ChatGPT can be a useful tool for you when you're trying to put together a flyer for an event that needs copy on the flyer so people will know what it's all about, or maybe content for your website to describe a workshop that you're offering, and the list goes on and on. I mean, when you put all that time into whatever your project is, it is nice to be able to get information out. 
In a sense, it's a form of advertising. No, you're not running a Super Bowl ad, nor are you taking out a full-page ad in the New York Times. Even so, you are trying to persuade people to move in your direction. And this is especially true when you're working in the digital space. On a personal note, right now, I'm spending a great deal of time in the digital space trying to frame the work that Allegra Houston and I have been doing around our Imaginative Storm project. So I'm constantly looking for ways to enhance the messages that, that I'm sending out. So that may explain why I'm curious about ChatGPT and I'm talking about it right now. Also, it is advertising. We're getting our message out. We're telling people what we're all about and we're hoping we can share what we think is valuable with some part of the world, thus advertising. And of course, advertising has been around as long as humans have been around. People announce what they have to other people and other people come to see what it is they have to offer. And people have been creative over the centuries regarding how they make their announcements. Some just yell it out to the community, others bang on a drum. Some people ring a bell. Some have more ritualized ways of doing it, like the call to prayer, the monks standing on the stoop, singing out to the community call to prayer, million ways you can advertise. And I have an interesting story about advertising that I learned by way of a BBC show called Century of Self. It's on YouTube. And even though this story is set in the 1920s around advertising, to this day, we are still influenced by the man who made this story come to be. His name is Edward Bernays, and he is considered the father of public relations. He was born in 1891 and he died in 1995, so if you do the math, you know that Edward Bernays had a long life and he was working up until the time he died. So what he did was he used a blend of psychology and media savvy to influence public opinion. He was born in Vienna and it turns out that he was Sigmund Freud's nephew. So what Bernays was able to do, he was able to take a lot of the ideas that Sigmund Freud had and he brought them to the States and he applied them to the advertising business. So again, he was the pioneer, the, the one who was considered the first on the block because he changed the term propaganda to public relations. During World War II, propaganda was what people referred to as the way of influencing people to move in whatever direction you wanted them to move in. And we still have that to this day. And even though a lot of the stuff that we encounter is propaganda, and we call it that, we also have public relation firms, and we hire public relation firms to help us get our message out. And if you're a small freelance life artist or entrepreneur, you're your own public relations firm. And a lot of what you do, and some of the techniques and strategies that you employ to promote yourself might well be traced back to Edward Bernays. And much of what artificial intelligence will draw on comes from the body of information, the vast body of information that's out there. And much of that information was influenced by the way Bernays taught people how to approach and how to influence mass markets to buy in one direction rather than in another. So in the BBC documentary film, Century of Self, it's a four-part series. It's really worth watching. It's old. It was shot 25, 30 years ago. So when the first session of Century of the Self opens, we see Edward Bernays interacting with Sigmund Freud, and you get a little bit of background about where he was coming from and how he grew up. 
And then Bernays makes his way over to America in the 20s and he starts working in the advertising business. His idea was people can be influenced if you suggest things to them. And he didn't have a lot of respect for the masses. He felt like the masses needed to be told what to do by the few who knew how to tell them what to do. These days, people resist that idea because we think of ourselves as individuals and we think of ourselves as being able to make our own choices, to make our own statements, to stand the way we want to stand because that's uniquely us. If you watch Century of Self, you might discover that the individual standing alone won't hold as much water as you think it does. But that comes later in the four-part series. In the beginning, Bernays goes to America, arrives in America, and he begins working in the advertising business. A little bit of time passes, the late 20s come, and the American Tobacco Company asked Bernays if he could possibly change the way the American public perceived women smoking. At that point in time, women smoked in private. They were not allowed to smoke in public. A woman smoking in public was considered an improper woman, if you know what I mean. And proper women never smoked in public. So the American Tobacco Company wanted Bernays to see if he could change this, and they especially wanted him to change it around women smoking Lucky Strikes. So since we are not in the era of artificial intelligence, everything that Edward Bernays did came out of his imaginative intelligence. And so he said to the American Tobacco Company, sure, I can do that for a price. And that's exactly what he did. He reached out to the socialites of the day and invited them all to join the Easter parade. And he, I'm sure, paid them and asked them to carry a packet of cigarettes with them, a packet of Lucky Strikes. And the idea was that they would stop somewhere along the way and as a group, light up. So he sent a press release out to all of the major newspapers in America saying that these women, all of whom were known to the public, were going to light up in public in the Easter parade and they're going to do it on a certain corner. And so he assembled all the photographers. They were gathered on the corner and the women were marching in the parade and they did stop at the corner. They all reached down, pulled out their lucky strikes in their left hands, lit the cigarettes, took a puff, and then held the cigarettes high and in unison said, torches of freedom. And the next day, the headlines appeared all over the country saying suffragettes declare their freedom in the Easter parade. And there the lucky strike cigarette was held high, and they all match the Statue of Liberty. Of course, we all know cigarettes are not torches of freedom. Cigarettes are coffin nails. Cigarettes are bad for your health. Cigarettes have caused many deaths. And you could put that at the doorstep of Edward Bernays because from that point on, cigarette smoking became a symbol of freedom. Look at any of the movies. Humphrey Bogart smoking his cigarette, Lauren Bacall smoking her cigarette. Look at the movies today, you still see it. The rebels are smoking the cigarette, or the kids will say, give me a cigarette, I'm gonna smoke, I don't care what the adults say. So Edward Bernays succeeded in doing that, and he succeeded in a lot more things. So if you watch The Century of Self on YouTube, the four-part series, you will get a sense of 
how advertising works and why it works as well as it does. And you will get a sense of why you're influenced, why I'm influenced, why I buy something when I see it online and I don't buy something else. And there are many reasons why imaginative intelligence and artificial intelligence and all the things that are going on today are important for us to pay attention to. But the most important reason is because when we pay attention to the environment around us, we become more aware, we become more discerning, we become the authors of our own stories, we have an authority, we can figure out where we stand. We don't have to always be listening to everything everybody tells us. I think Bernays may have had some of that right. It's easy to influence people, and we see this all the time. You see it in politics, you see it in advertising, you see it in, in a community setting where the whole community will gather around one idea. And that's happened over and over and over again. All that is happening, all that is certainly in play. Even so, it is important that we learn to listen to ourselves, to our own internal authority, to who we are. And I've said this many times, and I think it's important, and I think that's the reason why the, the poetry of life, the way of appreciating life is, is what's really essential here. That can never be a part of the AI experience, the poetics of nature, the way the plants bloom, the way the sea creatures crawl. In fact, it's interesting because there are many species that have yet to be discovered. So if a species exists on this earth in, and it has yet to be discovered, artificial intelligence cannot know it's there, just like we don't know it's there. So there are many, many dimensions that are existing right now in the world, and we're participating in a lot more dimensions than we think. I went to the sea recently, this past weekend. I'm in Manila recording this, so I'm near the sea. And I looked out on the vast sea, and it was a diving resort. And people were taking their trips out into the, into the ocean, to go diving, to dive the coral reefs. The Philippines are famous for their beautiful coral reefs, and many of the coral reefs are surviving and thriving. Some are not, but many of them are. So folks were out there to, to go dive into the sea to look at this beautiful, beautiful stuff. I wanted to, but I was a little afraid of the sea. But as I sat there on the shore, looking out on the vast water, I was thinking about how the water looks like a solid piece of land. Now I know it was moving, but and I know it was water, so I know what's underneath it, but really it was solid. I couldn't see beneath it, and yet in the water were many dimensions. So I thought, what about the other dimensions that I can't see? Just because I can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. So AI, can it see things that aren't there? Does it have a sense of, of loss when someone dies? Or does it have a sense of feeling like when someone falls in love? So as we move toward the top of our time together, the top of the hour, I would like to close with a few of the poems from my new book, 100 Days. I think that's a nice way to sorbet the time together 
in an imaginative fashion without any assistance from artificial intelligence. The book is titled 100 Days, Poems After Cancer, and it's basically a memoir of the 100 days of healing I experienced after having prostate cancer. So here are a few poems to give you a sense of how that memoir plays out. They're very short. Here goes. Day 11, Splashing Rhythms. Although I walked easier and faster yesterday, I'm not interested in becoming an express train or Learjet. I like the slow pace of ambling along railroad tracks or paddling a canoe across a salt marsh. I want to take my time while I admire great blue herons gliding over blackish water, slow wing beats, sinuous necks, long sharp bills. I want to pop my paddle on the surface and make rhythms like the djembe drums the rainbow tribes make, their shadows spinning round and round until their toes tell a deeper story than their tongues could ever say. Skin is their currency, night is their day, smoke is their language. When the noon train whistled up the valley, I thought, good things happen when you give yourself over to the tracks. I'll bet I'm not the only one who likes walking the rails. I mentioned bees' knees earlier. Here's day 21, my father's bees. Once in Oracle, Arizona, a beekeeper told me that during the flowering season, a forager bee works itself to death in five weeks. When I was young, my father kept bees. He started his beekeeping hobby when a swarm wrapped around an apple tree. He shook the new bees into a bucket and dropped them into a hive. Two summers and five highs later, when I was 14, I'd often watch his bees launch from the hives out across the fields, working themselves to death, searching for the sweet nectar inside the flowers blooming on the hills. And that was on day 21. I wrote this book in different settings, and some of it was in Asheville, some of it was in, in Taos, New Mexico, uh, here's one on day 50, the risks you take. The sun above the Sangre de Cristo mountains brought to mind the burner on my mother's kitchen stove. Don't touch that burner, it's hot, mother said. The coils looked cool to my five-year-old eyes. I pressed my palms and fingers down. My skin sizzled, I jerked my arm back and stared at my new blisters. Over the years, I've often wondered why I branded my hand instead of testing the air above the stove to gauge the heat. Most stories rise from the risks you take. If I'd done nothing but wave my hand over the coils, I'd have no story to tell. Walking the fence is the biggest risk you'll ever take. Now that was day 50 of my healing process. I'm just scanning through my manuscript right now. Here's another one I wrote in Taos on day 57, titled, Stare into the Perfect. The ease of Taos continues. I've gained much contentment from the magpies in the trees and much camaraderie with the regulars here at Wired Cafe who would believe me if I told them I was eating plums inside the bounty of my dreams. Dreams belong to this land. Far away up in the mountains, a young shepherd tends his flocks. He stares into the perfect openness of passing hours. His voice is a deer coming out of a tree. I see everything when they are allowed to look. And that was on day 57, and I was in Taos. And by this point, I'm in, in June. This, this narrative starts 
the 1st of April, and I continued in Taos for a few weeks, hanging out at Wired Cafe and enjoying Taos and enjoying the summer, stargazing and all the other things you do. And then, and then I went to New York City, where I finished the, my healing process, and I finished it over the last three weeks of, of the 100 days. So here it is, number 72, How It Feels. Earlier today, in Washington Square's Hotel Deco Room, lounge music streamed across the bar where mirrors reflected sunlight off photos of iconic stars framed on the walls. I sipped my tea. New Yorkers hurried past the hotel's windows like I now hurry along the streets and avenues. Perhaps on my city sojourns, I'll see my cousin the rain, my brother the thunder, my lover the shadow, my sister the mist, my mother the moon, my father the sun. In the flourish of my growing, grief still passes over my seasons. And that was number 72. And I will give you one more before we close out, just to give you a sense of, of how this all played. Scanning through to find a nice one for you. And... How about this? All the way, day 90. Today, while walking from the Strand Bookstore up Park Avenue, I bought a pizza slice for $2. The ovens behind the counter reminded me of when I once owned a pizza, the Pizza Port in 1976 at Riceville Beach, North Carolina, just west of the Inland Waterway. Customers paid $6 for an all-the-way pie and 50 cents for a plain slice. Unfortunately, the place burned down three summers later after I sold it to a tennis player who spoke bad French. How could I have ever guessed all these years later I'd be walking north on Park Avenue thinking about how I once made pizza pies on a hot June day in a shabby little frame house down in Carolina. And so there's a sample of some of my imaginative leaps, my imaginative intelligence. I did not use AI to, to create any of those poems. I hope you enjoyed them. And I read them off the cuff. I didn't try to edit them or anything, so there's some stumbles through it. Keep it messy, a lot of people say. Mess is currency, people will tell you. And I do believe that's true. So thank you for listening to this sojourn through artificial and imaginative intelligence. Thank you for being with me underneath the moon. The moon is important. I liked looking up at the moon. Did you know I talk to my friends when the moon is full? And they can hear me. We all live on the moon. Or do we? Anyway, thank you ever so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. And you have been tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KECEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. Robin Collier for airing the show on Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. And thank you, Imaginative Storm, the Imaginative Storm Project, which is behind this work that we're doing right now. So if you're interested in learning how to write better, ImaginativeStorm.com is a good place to check out. And you can always reach me, Nave at JamesNave.com. I'm happy to hear from you. And with that in mind, I would like to say once again, thanks for tuning in to 
Twice Five Miles Radio. I appreciate it. We do go twice five miles to find those stories and tell the stories. And I hope you do too. Till the next time, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.